0: Why is it we humans get romanced by complexity when the answers can be found at a simple and practical level? This is the Simply Practically Human Podcast, where the human manager Mark Labasque features experts who have a track record in humanizing workplaces, using simplicity and practicality as their go-to approach. It's all about getting back to what it is to be human and watch workplaces thrive rather than just survive.
1: Hey there, welcome to the Simply Practically Human podcast. Mark LeBusk here. Today's guest, uh, speaking with, a, uh, I guess, a, a colleague in the same space as I am in that sort of leadership development space, I'm very much focused around the human connection a great guy by the name of Eric Lin, who's based in Munich in Germany. And uh, Eric shares a bit of his backstory and it's quite a fascinating story about, uh, I guess, not belonging anywhere and growing up as a uh, as a refugee and, and sort of early days in, in London, in one of the, uh, as he says, one of the harder areas of London. And then his, his story from there and how he got into what he does today, which has basically been running his own facilitation business now for just on 30 years and working across many different parts of the world. We're gonna talk today about the topic of engagement and, and I guess what really, what is engagement? Why is it important to understand what engagement is? And I think what's great about today's episode is Eric doesn't use the E word as much, he uses other words to describe what engagement is because as he says, he talks about this idea of engagement is a feeling and not a measurement. So he's going to get into sharing some pretty simple and practical tips around what you can do as a manager or a fellow uh, worker, a, a peer, a human being on what are some of the things you can do to really drive up engagement. And he looks at engagement around feeling valued, having meaningful work and having ownership with an overarching piece being about showing and displaying integrity at all times. Really, really fascinating guy. Very, very deep thinker. Check his book out as well. He's just got a book that's come out called Dancing with Change, and uh, it's only just been released. But he shared some very, very exciting news about how it's been picked up as, as something that could become a, I think, a fantastic leadership program opportunity, which which he's exploring right now. So sit back, have a listen, take some notes. There's plenty. Of um, experience from this fellow who doesn't mind calling a spade a shovel. He uh, puts it out there. He says he's into the sort of, he's not into the bullshit factor. He wants to just talk about it as he sees it. You'll get that sense here. Sit back, have a listen, and we'll catch you at the end. Today, I'm delighted to be joined all the way from Munich in Germany by facilitator, executive coach, and the author of the recently released book. Dancing with Change, Eric Lynn. Eric, thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. Mate, uh, it's been a while. We've uh, we've sort of been hanging out a bit, provoking people, and I've enjoyed following your uh, journey now, I reckon, for a few years on on LinkedIn. Can you remember how we connected, mate? Uh, What what was your recollection of that? To be perfectly honest, I don't have one.
0: I remember something must have provoked either you or I to connect with the other (laughs) on LinkedIn, and we did. And I have no idea
1: whatsoever today what it was. (laughs) You know what? I I actually think that's pretty much it. I think I read – I reckon I read a comment that you'd made on a post and just thought, wow, this guy's got a bit of an edge about him and I need to know more about him. And then I think early days I was a little scared of you. I think it was – when I'd post something, I was wondering – Geez, I wonder if Eric's going to comment on this and see what happens. But uh, I've enjoyed our conversations. We've caught up a couple of times one to one and also through the, um, that sort of group thing that we've got on. But today we're going to get into the topic of engagement, which I know is a great word that we hear all the time. Um, but before we get there, I want you to talk a bit about your backstory. I want you to talk, I know a little bit about it and I'm fascinated by it, but there's quite the journey there of uh, traveling around the world. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe right from the early days to today, a little bit about your story.
0: Okay. um, I actually grew up in uh, one of the less salubrious areas of London. And I got there via my parents who had nothing whatsoever to do with the UK at all. Um, They were refugees, which makes me a kind of person with no homeland. Right, Which is... um, you know, there's positives, and I suppose one of the negative factors is that you don't feel you belong. So one of the things I learned very early on was to question everything. That got me into a bit of trouble at school, <laughs> uh, which is fun when I think about it these days. But no, to cut a long story short, after university, first job I had was actually a great bunch of colleagues and a really good boss. You know, I learned a lot from him then. But after a couple of years, I was just bored. I thought, what's all this about? So, i uh, those were the days when traveling was pretty cheap. And I um, packed a backpack and off I went around Europe. You know, when you're young, in your early 20s, you sleep anywhere, you know, sleep on beaches, which was great. You know, can't do that <laughs> these days. Our society is too restricted these days. It was free in those days at the Septman's. Yeah. And, I suppose the first time I really thought consciously about this thing, which isn't a thing, called engagement, but it's, um, you know, there's something going on in the world at the moment, uh, especially in the business world, that I refer to as thingification.
1: Thingification.
0: Thingification,
1: yeah. There's a word.
0: uh, uh, Objectifying everything. And somebody suggested not long ago, a friend said, why don't you write another book called de thingification (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no, well, we'll see with that. I'm busy with other stuff at the moment, but you know, I like the idea, to be honest. And after sort of settling down a while, I found myself as a school teacher for a while, which was great working with the kids, but it was awful working within the strictures of the uh, English school system. Yep. This was in Northern England, and engagement, yeah, as far as the kids were concerned. But then it's like a slap on the face when somebody says, is this within the rules, you know? And the kids are loving what you, you you know, I was never doing it alone. I was always doing it with other teachers, you know? Mm -hmm. Then what was really, I would say, my first serious job in the field of corporate training. You know, I'd done other stuff previously, but if I look back and I wouldn't consider it serious, you know? I was like, as a young person, you're flying by the seat of your pants, you know, just getting a job to move on. And it was with one of Germany's largest corporations as a corporate communication skills trainer. And the positive was I learned an awful lot. What this profession is about, I say this profession and that profession, because I've long since stopped doing that. Uh, What I also learned was how not to treat people because it was the same story again as when I was a school teacher. It was like I loved the work with the people I was working with, but there was a puppet master up there trying to control every single thing we said. And in the end, let's just say I had to leave and found myself inadvertently founding my own company doing similar work as an independent, you know, I started off independently and suddenly I had too much work, which was nice, but then, okay, I've got employees now. And I had to start thinking about this whole field of, yeah, engagement. What is it that drives people to do good work? Mm. Because if they were doing good work, it was good for the for me and for everybody else in the company. If they weren't doing good work, it was bad for all of us. So, yeah that's how I started thinking consciously about it. That's a long time ago now. That's the late 1980s. I
1: was going to say, I think, because you said you've been doing your own thing now for on 30 years. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And today, the sort of work you're doing today, what, what how would you describe that? It's completely different. I work in real time.
0: I mean, training isn't about real time. Training is training skills. And to be perfectly honest, I now, I had a good little business running at the time, but now I learned to reject the notion of communication skills training. Yeah. Because to put it far too bluntly, it's about telling people what to say and how to say what in particular situations, but that's not how life works. Life is far more complex than that. It's far more fluid than that. So I work in real time. I'm a facilitator, which is opening and holding a space for people to do what they need to do. And that's the critical thing. You're not conducting anything. You're not directing anything. If you're doing real facilitation, you're enabling people to get to their core of who they are and who they are together and why they're together and helping them get focused. And that's when the funky stuff happens.
1: Nice. Just before we go off the, the sort of career, what do you think over those early days when you were? traveling and that. obviously you would have been doing a bit of work and in those times as well. What was the most interesting job you took on back in those early days in your 20s?
0: Two stand out. One was actually while I was a student as a barman. Yep. You learned to deal with people. Yeah. That was my holiday job there at university in the shorter holidays, the Christmas and Easter holidays, and actually also for the – um Concerts. We, you know, we had a pool that held about, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred people or something like that. So we got some quite decent bands coming to play there in the early seventies. And I was one of the people who ran the bar. There were a group of about ten of us who did it. And you have to learn on your feet very quickly an awful lot about human interaction and the question of integrity, because of course all your mates are pushing you, come on. I said, No, 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 I can't do it. You know, and we had to work really as an integrated, yeah, the word team is a bit saporite these days, you know, it's not we had we but we were, you know, we had to work as an integrated unit so we could take advantage of it, you know, who was able to go down actually into the concert hall, you know, we had our reserve seats and we had a rotor going and everybody had to keep to it, you know, so we got the best of all worlds in those days. So that was one that taught me an awful lot about human interaction. It was fun. At the same time, plus all the other benefits. The other one was when I was out in Canada working on a tree farm, which was great being, and it was in um, Edmonton in Alberta, because that's where I happened to land. And it was like great being in the outdoors, learning a lot. The guy who was kind of in charge of it was, I mean, really good guy. Learned a lot from him about nature, most of which I've forgotten about, but it was just that feeling, okay, nature, this is it. You know, when you're growing up in a, in a London high-rise, there's not that much nature around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that gave me space to work and, yeah, just reflect on stuff.
1: So the early days of, um, of starting to read and understand people, which is something that you do very, very well today. Let's get to this topic of the day and... The word, the E word, engagement, what does it mean? Like, what's your brief definition of engagement? And and perhaps roll your definition of of engagement up against maybe what we hear it called in workplaces today. What would you say? What engagement is? Uh, Mark, I think, you know, by now I'm not big on definitions, but I'll do my best. Go for it.
0: Engagement is actually nothing more than a feeling. Yep. Do I feel engaged? Do I feel I want to engage? And it's actually an outcome of the environment, which is why engagement surveys are completely meaningless because they ask the wrong questions. Furthermore, it's important for everybody in an organization to be engaged. Everybody. But it's not nearly enough. Because if an organization is really going to thrive, people have to feel a sense of ownership. They have to feel it's mine. And when I feel it's mine, then this kind of want-to factor just comes out of me. Yeah. And I feel far too frequently engagement is put out there as a thing, as kind of what can we tweak here so that people get more into their work, but they're not necessarily getting more into their work. They might be working a little bit more efficiently, but human beings are not machines. We're human beings. We're alive. Efficiency is the wrong concept to use when we're referring to human beings. And despite all of these surveys, for about the past decade, Gallup's Polls on employee engagement throughout Europe. I don't know what they are in Australia or in North America, actually, or anywhere else in the world. But throughout Europe, they hover around 13 or 14%. Yeah. Now, what's that saying? We're doing an awful lot wrong. But what are we learning? Because that's over a period of about 10 years, they're pretty consistent.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you share that. I, I've seen some numbers on global Gallup results around engagement surveys where the number hasn't materially changed that much, give or take a few points, over about 40 years of, of surveying it. Now, if you imagine, Eric, the amount of money and in investment that organisations have made, not just on conducting a survey, but then the the activity that sort of, I'm gonna call that busyness of the activity that comes after the engagement <laughs> survey, where it usually works a bit like this. The HR department run around with meetings with managers who have got an engagement score with their team and they'll say, we need to come up with three things to do better to engage our people more. It's like you said before, it's a very robotic way to be treating human beings who are, who. and I like what you said before, Engagement being a feeling, I'm not sure that giving them a 20-minute survey to do to say how engaged they are is really cutting the mustard. What do you think? I agree. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Completely. The fundamental question for organisations to really ask is, what do we want to be? That's the fundamental question. What do we want our organisation to be? And I rarely come across leaders who ask that question. Let me just give a couple of sentences on the backstory as to how I got to that question. I get my assignments from usually one of two reasons. One, there's a significant change on the way. M&A is a classic. And the thing that people don't realize with M&A is that following an acquisition, nothing is the same as it was before. Because company A which a swallowed company B, neither of them exist any longer. You've got a new entity, albeit with the same people, a lot of the same, and but some new ones as well. Or when things go seriously wrong, Eric, can you help us get this train back on the tracks? It's derailed. And the first thing I always do is obviously I speak to one or two of the key people, and then I say, who else do I need to talk to? Who are the other key players here? Not only the ones in the executive positions, but the key influencers, or for whatever reason, they play an important role in um, in the whole framework that we're talking about. And I'll conduct individual interviews with them. So I'm not going to conduct any kind of written survey. As far as I'm concerned, they're a waste of time for a number of reasons. If you like, we can come back to that, but I'll just skip over it at the moment. I'll conduct individual structured, free-flowing interviews about an hour and a half with these people in it they enable you to pick up the nuance of what's going on and when we're talking about reorientation what is often called organization change the question that always comes to the fore is what kind of organization do we want to be yeah it always comes out and then i present it and I say is this the question you want to run with And they have to say yes or no. And I've never experienced anybody saying no. I have actually. Sometimes they say thank you, but no thanks, which means they're scared of it, which Mm -hmm. means you can't do anything. You know, you're losing the business, but you're not going to be able to do anything good with it anyway. Because even if you get the business and they don't follow through with it, then the people are going to be left frustrated. Now, that's not a particularly positive outcome. So the so-called engagement levels are actually like to go down after that because so much here has to do with leadership integrity.
1: So why, why is it that, this is my experience, may not be yours, but certainly mine and others I speak to in this space we're in, why is it that organisations call people in like us mostly when they've received a, a less than favourable engagement survey result and that's their starting point? Why is it that they use that almost like the that's the piece of artwork at the moment that we don't like and we want that to be better than what it is, rather than asking that question of what do we want to be? Well, why do they use that document? Do you think as the as the starter of the process? Because they've been
0: blinded by the lights of KPIs, the wrong KPIs. <laughs> uh, the good old KPIs. It's a bit like rabbits and headlights. Mm. We suffer from this disease that I refer to as measurementitis. Now, I'm certainly not anti-measurements. We need measurements that make sense, but we far too frequently fall into the trap of creating measurements that make no sense whatsoever just so that we can have a measurement. Yep. Because we think of organizations as machines to be tweaked and adjusted according to our needs rather than the living systems that they are. They're alive. Organizations are alive. They're full of human beings and each one of us is alive. Otherwise we wouldn't be there. And human beings are unpredictable unless we use force and we're not into coercion here. I know that you're not into it. I know that I'm not into it. We both know that plenty of people are into it, but that's not what enables an organization to thrive. And then there's the pressure of quarterly results. It's a totally messed up concept. How can any organization thrive if all they're looking at is uh, what comes out on an Excel spreadsheet every three months? There's no space there for growth. There's no space for evolution. And that's what organization should be. Now, what I refer to as economic health, it's exceedingly important because without it, The organization doesn't exist. But the point is, how do we measure it? When do we measure it? And a collection of measurements do not make up the big measurements, if you
1: like. Yeah. So just on that point, engagement being a feeling, what's the relationship between that economic sort of health of the business and the human feeling, let's say engaged, not a great word, inspired? charged to spend some more discretionary effort. How does that feeling then equate to better economic health if you can get your people into that space?
0: It's actually quite easy while being highly complex to in- implement. I'll come back to the question earlier, what do we want our organisation to be? And the key question is, how can we cultivate an environment that enables people to want to take ownership? Because they're doing it themselves anyway. And it's part of letting go, letting go of this delusion of control that we have. And the key point is psychology, is psychological health. How do I feel about this? I mean, psychological health and physical health are intricately interconnected. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not a doctor, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that so many physical health problems arise out of the feel-bad factor. I'm not feeling good about my life, and I only have one life, whether I'm at work for part of the day, I'm at home with my family for another part of the day, or I'm out with my friends for another part of the day, it's still one life. Am I feeling good about this? And when we consider that we're at work for approximately 50% of our waking lives, you know, the rest of the time we're sleeping, the other eight hours, so if we take an eight-eight-eight split, That's hugely important. And if work feels meaningful to me, and it's about the work itself, it's about the organization I'm working with, because an organization is a community where people happen to work. If I'm feeling good in the company of my colleagues, if I'm feeling valued, if I'm feeling that the outcomes of my work are valued, but it's not only my work, it's actually our work, everyone every person in that community that is doing whatever they're doing, then what we call engagements, what I prefer to refer to as ownership, is just automatically there. So the question becomes a non-question. And then what happens to results? You're more concerned about quality. You're more concerned about efficiency of the equipment. You're more concerned about working effectively. You're more concerned about meeting customer requirements that you have committed to taking on. It's all relational. You're more concerned about ensuring that you've got good relationships with your suppliers, that you've got good relationships internally, which is the most important thing, that you've got good relationships with the customers. You know, we're human beings. We talk to one another. But are we talking to one another generally, as human beings, or are we engaging with John as a customer or Mary as a supplier? That doesn't get us very far. What if we talk to one another as humans?
1: Yeah, so back to that point around machines or robots versus that human element. So some of those words you used there, and I I, I like this idea of stepping away from the, the E word, engagement, valued, meaningful, ownership. I add this thing at the end then equals into this thing that we chase called discretionary effort, this extra effort that people make because they feel like they're valued. They they own things, they do this type of stuff. I'm wondering if you could share with us from your experience over time, you know, going right back to your time in the bar, to the time in Edmonton and whatever else, that what have you learned that you could pass on to the listeners here around if you want people to feel valued. And to have that sense of ownership, feel that they've got meaningful work, and if that all adds up to that beautiful E-word engagement, what would be three simple and practical tools and tips you could give to managers to create that environment that you just described?
0: Probably the first one would be to open yourself up, show up as a human being. Simple as that. And in the end, it's about integrity. I might be your boss, but I'm first and foremost a human being. The person you're seeing is the real me, and that is at the same time an invitation to you to be the real you, a decision which is taken by yourself. Regardless of the label I have, regardless of my nominal position, I talk a lot about nominal leadership, but that's another theme. Mm. But Of course, intricately interconnected. We're still humans. At that level, two things there, you know, of the three you asked me. First, open up and show who you are as a human being. The second one, just interact with people as normal human beings and display integrity because if you don't, they'll see through you straight away. Yeah. And the third one is just be appreciative. You know, there's two things that go in hand. Be appreciative when people are doing positive stuff, it doesn't take much and uh when there's something that's less than positive that comes out talk with them as human
1: beings it sounds very very simple and i'm sure people listening will be like it sounds too simple but this idea of being human or, or treating people like humans interested to get something from you around when did you discover that as a because you know in your book your book dancing with change there's a lot of talk around you know organizations are full of humans and they're not sort of machines and this type of stuff when did you get a really good sense of the power of this human element in the workplace and how it can drive can drive this engagement in, in human beings?
0: I suppose I think of a couple of examples of initiatives I've worked on. Both of them were projects, actually. One was a uh, European Union finance research project on design for environment for transportation systems. There were a group of 30 people from, I think, if I remember correctly, five or six different countries, from a whole bunch of organizations, from huge corporations to very small specialist entities with three or four employees. And the project manager was completely new to the role. And she was recommended to engage two people at the beginning to accompany the process, to keep the group on track. Now I was one of them and there was somebody else. What we saw as the project developed over three years was that they didn't do what everybody expected them to do. They spent their budget driving or traveling around Europe to meet one another. The end result of that was the project came in within time, below budget, and they exceeded the expectations. And a follow-up project was actually the next stages were designed. This was not part of the original deal as a sort of bridging, you know, from the old, you know, the first to the second project. They liked being with one another. They said, No, I'm gonna get on the train or get in my car and go there. And so the members of the work packages, always what, five or six people or so, they arranged to meet. They liked each other's company. And they got a hell of a lot more work done and better quality work done because it was a research project. It was they were into something new, something that they believed in. And they had the freedom to do that. <clears throat> because the project manager saw the results were coming out of it and by the way she was one of the people who were doing this as well because she was like that a human being
1: it's interesting how usually project work like that will start with a meeting and they'll get out the gantt chart or the work in progress report and they'll go straight into the Technical work-related stuff. They won't know much about each other. When things start to get a bit scratchy with each other, and and a little bit of conflict happens, they don't know each other, so it all goes to shit. Now she's worked that the other way around, which is let's build deep connection. (laughs)
0: That's exactly it. I spent time working with the leadership team of the project, two or three days. I can't remember before we got everybody together, and then we got when we got everybody together. The focus was actually on building the relationships with the focus on what the project was supposed to be doing so that everybody had the same understanding of what the project was supposed to be doing and who and how they were going to be working together. And fundamentally, you can say, we let them play. We gave them a structure within which to work.
1: So back to your three words, meaningful, ownership, and valued, like building those sorts of things there. What, what else would you sort of layer into that as well? Integrity. Yeah. Absolutely integrity. That's non-negotiable. Mm. So, again, a really, really simple idea. Brings me to my next point, and this is one that you may or may not agree with me on, but I want your um, your view on this. I have a view that we chase the complex when at times there's, you know, the things you've just talked about then, very human things, simple human practices of building connection, getting to know each other, There's sort of things that we should simply know because we're wired as human beings, but seem, we tend to want to chase some bloody complex way of, of solving the next big issue. What are your thoughts around the idea that I have that humans get romanced by the flame of complexity when they should be looking at the sort of simplicity and the things that are sort of sitting right in front of them. Have you got any thoughts around that one? i, I like the look on your face right now, mate. I know this is going to be good.
0: <laughs> it so happens I do have one of good thoughts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'd be very disappointed if you didn't, Eric.
0: Okay, This is going in a couple of directions. The term complexity has become very populist as a member of what I refer to as that awful VUCA family, which arose following the fall of the Berlin War. It came out of the US military, which is always a bad start, because they love to see the world in simple terms of us and them, and they still do 30 years on. It hasn't changed much. That's one side of it. Another side of it, I mean, what is complexity? It's not a thing. We're here, again, into the thingification. Complexity describes the nature of our world. Mm. Our world is complex. It's alive. There's no possible way we can understand all of the interactions and which there's no direct cause and effect in living systems, or very little, you know, only in the banal sense. Yeah, if if it rains, the grass gets wet. Yes, so what? Yeah, I mean, it's important because that's part of its nourishment. But what else is going on in that field to make the plants grow in the way they grow? What else is going on in that forest with the interdependencies? We can't see it all. Now, scientists will go in there and they will sort of examine things and we'll learn a lot from them. And here we come to the other part with complexity, because if I can make something sound highly complex and scientific, well, I'm extremely smart, aren't I? Yep. Possibly I'm not in the least smart. Possibly I'm being a smartass rather than being smart.
1: Or you might be what I refer to as an intelligent idiot. I like that. Yeah. Eye eyes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, if we recognize complexity as the nature of the world, then we can get away from this. That's all it is. Now, am I speaking against science? Absolutely not. We need science, but we need science where we need science. When we're talking about human interaction, we don't need science. We need to be able to relate to our gut. Because it's my gut that tells me whether or not I want to interact with you, and if I do, how I want to interact with you. And if I don't, but I have to interact with you, how I'm going to interact with you. And here we are back to these concepts of engagement and ownership or whichever fits for us. It's like, how can we cultivate that environment? We use nature as our metaphor. We use nature as our model. And we say quite openly, I don't know. Hmm. Because there are so many questions out there, really, really important questions, where the only realistic answer is, I don't know, and that's fine, because that opens up what I refer to as a learning space.
1: So why is it that, Human beings find it very difficult, particularly in organizational settings, find it extremely difficult to say those three words. I don't know. Education systems.
0: I prefer to call them schooling systems because they're not really, you know, necessarily about education. They're more about schooling. In school, we learn a bunch of facts, we learn to regurgitate them, we get good marks in tests and exams. If by the time we're leaving school, the marks are good enough, then we can go on to university where I guess I was fortunate at the time, this was in the early 70s, to go to a university that encouraged open thinking. And it was also part of the era in London. So I had tutors that encouraged me to ask questions, which I'd learned as a kid anyway. But fundamentally, what you have to do when you're writing an exam is to produce a set of answers or a set of essays that the person who is marking it thinks is adequate to give you that piece of paper which says, hello, I've got a degree. And what do we do after that? We either go to business school where actually I find a lot of it is more like schooling again, or we go straight into employment and this phrase, I don't know, doesn't come into it because we've learned that we have to
1: know. I also wonder if the complexity helps us to chase something. We say, I don't know, but I'm going to go and work it out. So then we make it more complex than it needs to be. Let's finish off with some stuff about your book, because I know that your book's out there now and it's getting some good airplay and people are enjoying the read. So Dancing with Change. Give us a couple of minutes on how it came about and then what people can expect when they've finished reading that book and they've highlighted it and dog-eared it and done whatever they do, what what are they going to learn out of that?
0: The title is Dancing with Change and the subtitle is Cultivating Healthy Organisations. And you've already heard me talking about cultivating the environment. That's what it's about. Two themes, notions, I don't really know which words to use, that have accompanied me throughout life are culture and Change. Turn a bit about my history. I'm uncategorizable in that sense. And it comes back to this I get so sick and tired of when change is presented as a thing or something that you can do to others. Because change is fundamentally the essence of life. When we stop changing, we're dead. That's the day we stop changing. And it's going to happen to all of us. And that's part of life. Death is part of life, as Tibetans know and write about only too well. And what you can find in here is presenting the notion of change as the essence of life, and that should be the metaphor that we use for our organizations. It pulls apart what I refer to as the myths of change. I call them popular and populist myths of, of change. These include change management. These include resistance to change. Change is hard. People are afraid of change. They're not.
1: Mm.
0: You know, these are, these are myths. And there are plenty of examples in there to show that, actually, we're on the wrong track here. It's a case of being blinded by the headlights. And that will not lead to a healthy environment. To cultivate a healthy environment, actually, you have to open a space for others. We have to rethink our ideas on leadership. We have to rethink our ideas on organization culture. We have to work with the natural change. We have to rethink our our ideas on relationships because that's the core of all. Because any system that is alive is relational. Mm, Nice. That's in there. And it finishes off with actually a framework for cultivating a healthy organization. There's no models. Nice. Because I say each organization has to design its own model that is unique for them because each organization is unique in some way.
1: Yep. All right. Let's wrap it up with where people can find out more about you. So where would they go to find out a bit about your business?
0: CultureQS.com. One word. CultureQS is one word.
1: Yep, cultureqs.com. If they want to reach out and connect with you, where's the best place to do that? Is it is it LinkedIn or what are you... What, what are,
0: LinkedIn is fine and easy to find on LinkedIn. And if they want to send a personal message, then um, contact me via the website. There's a contact page there. my It's an email address on the contact page So
1: Fantastic. Mate, this has been a while in the making to get you on here. From going from... Having a little bit of fear about whether you would hammer me on a, on a LinkedIn uh, piece <laughs> now to, to sitting comfortably uncomfortable with you on the other end of a Zoom call, doing a podcast, I think you've helped me in my growth and development, my friend. So I say thank you for that and thanks for coming onto the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me, Mark. As you know, I always enjoy our exchanges and learn a lot too. A
1: couple of things that I just wanted to mention straight up here thingification and measurementitis were two big words that I picked up today from Eric. We try to make everything into a thing. It's got to be a thing, some sort of thing, and we're over-engineering stuff. And then that idea of measurementitis and just measuring everything we can, I guess, to show that we are competent, capable Whatever we want it to be, um, achieving the results, we, we want to measurement Titus and the curse of the KPI, as he called it, was quite an interesting thing to hear. I loved his stories about the simple and practical tools and tips to drive into this, helping people feel valued, feeling like they're doing meaningful work, having ownership of the work, showing integrity, which you know sort of gets us to the E-word of engagement and the things to do about opening up and letting go and giving other people permission to do the same things. I think that was really, really uh, important. You know, Some of the ideas around discretionary effort and how you can tap into people's discretionary effort, how we've got to allow humans to be human and not to treat them as some sort of machine, that organisations aren't machines, they're full of human beings. This idea that complexity is a populist view and that people have joined what he called the VUCA family. And and so another word or I guess an acronym that I really struggle with is VUCA. Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Is it there just to put fear into us, to try and find the complex way to do things? And I guess leaving you with this one, and this is in Eric's book and it really resonated with me, the use of those magical three words, which I don't know. And why is it that we don't say those words more often? And if we did, maybe, maybe we would just be able to build better engagement, not just with others, but with ourselves as well. Hey, if you like this, why not rate it five stars? And if you loved it, share it with your friends. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical and keep it human. Bye for now.